You're listening to Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast, dedicated to exploring the full potential of human physiology and mind with focus on ancient and modern techniques of self-development. Spend some time with Dr. Nader, who is leading the way in the science of consciousness, and begin your journey to better understanding the relationship of mind and body, consciousness and physiology right now. How can we begin to understand this remarkable phenomenon? A group of people meditating together can lower crime? Dr. Tony Nader and scientists David Orm Johnson and Ken Kavanaugh discuss the findings that every individual in the population contributes to the national consciousness. And reciprocally, national consciousness influences everyone. The research is focused on the advanced techniques of transcendental meditation and shows how large groups of people practicing this technique have a large positive effect on society, with significant decreases in the national homicide rate, motor vehicle fatality rate, drug-related death rate, violent crime rate, infant mortality rate, and fatality rate for other accidents. Listen in as they discuss the results and what this could mean for lowering the overall stress of our society and our world. Welcome to the podcast, Consciousness is All There Is. The previous few slides that David has shown us show that there is a trend. And unfortunately, the basic prediction is not very happy at all. It looks like more drugs are being used, even though so much money is being spent and et cetera, et cetera, on this factor and the other factors also, drug, homicides. He showed us all of these different different charts. And then comes the the creation of this group, just a group of people. They came together. They practiced this mental technique, advanced techniques of transcendental meditation. And there you see that the trends are completely changed. All of these horrible things have been reduced. And what it shows is that the change that has happened has happened after the groups started to increase and in a correlated way the more the group increased then the change happened the more the group increased then the change happened and happened more and it happened more and it keeps happening more as much as the group increases so the cause precedes the effect david back to you Yes, thank you. You know, when we're talking about collective consciousness, we're talking about consciousness. And one of the one of the things that we know about consciousness is it's very sensitive to change. You know, we have a job and suddenly we get a raise and then there's a big elation, you know, big effect and then it sort of drops away. And then there's also habituation, something, you know, things are better. And then after a while, you kind of start taking it for granted. So in this slide, I was looking at the rate of change. That is, how much does the size of the group increase from the day before? It's just simply subtracting one day from the other. And what you see is in the blue line is that starting about 2006, there was a big acceleration in change in the in the amount of coherence or in the size of the group, a big spike. And then it declined as, as the numbers sort of stabilized at that high level of the threshold needed for the U.S. during the experimental period, the change dropped down. It wasn't changing anymore. So just looking at that part, what would happen if you suddenly had a big flash of coherence? Suddenly... The United States, God gave the United States a big raise in, in consciousness. And then looking at the, the red line is showing the negativity. And what you see is that there's a kind of a wave of reduction, the big splash of coherence caused the negativity to, to decline. And then it, and then at the other end, when the size of the group suddenly changed in a downward direction, then you see that the negativity increased. I want to show you what happens looking at the uh, quality of life indicator as a positive variable so that an upward direction 
indicates an improvement in quality of life. So here we have the big splash of, of uh, increase in coherence in the size of the group. And then the golden line shows that following that, again, a leading lagging relationship, it creates these reverberations of positivity that goes on for a couple of years and then declines when the size of the group start decreasing, then you start getting a, a sharp decline in the quality of life. So I thought that was very interesting. And if we can see the next slide, we see all of the variables on top of each other shown in a positive direction. So an upward direction is a reduction in murder, a reduction in rape and so forth. And here you see that the big splash of coherence is causing these reverberations throughout all of these completely different variables. And then uh, one other thing I was interested in is the next slide showing what happens in Iowa uh, because the group is located in Iowa. So here we see in the red line, the violent crime for the entire United States. And then the green line is the violent crime for Iowa. So during our demonstration or experimental period, you see the reduction in violent crime in the United States, and then it turns around as the group gets smaller. And you see Iowa shows even a steeper decrease, steeper decline in violent crime than you saw in the US as a whole. So there's some localization effect uh, shown by that. Now the next slide, thank you. I just wanted to compare this with another amazing study that was done back in 1983. And in that study was, was conducted in, in Israel and Lebanon. And what that study showed uh, was that as there was an increase and decrease in the size of the coherence grading group uh, on a daily level, on this, this study went over a two month period. And so here we're looking at daily data then if you look at the graph below that, you see that uh, corresponding with the rise and fall of the coherence creating group, there was a rise and fall of a composite quality of life index, very parallel to, uh, to the study that we just showed. And so and then, then in, uh, the current study on the right-hand side, you see the rise and fall in the size of the group, and then you see the change in the quality of life index. If we can see the next slide, Okay, here, here it is in, is in a positive direction, which makes it more parallel to the, to the study done, the International Peace Project in the Middle East done in 1983, that you see at the top on each side, left and right, you see the change in the size of the group. And then the bottom, you see the change in the quality of life. Now, the next slide compares the two studies. And my point's gonna be that this effect works on different scales. So, the duration of the effect on the International Peace Project in the Middle East was two months. The study that we just talked about, the Invincible America Assembly, was over 17 years, and it's a five-year demonstration period. So it's, you know, it's over, what, however many times more. The population affected in the study in Israel and Lebanon was under 4 million, and the U.S. population was 200. 98,378,000, so almost 100 times more. And the, the superradiance requirement in the study for Israel and Lebanon was a group of only 197 people. And during the uh, study we just looked at, the Invincible America study, it was 1,725. That's almost 10 times the size for, for, for affecting a population that's almost 100 times bigger. That's what the square root of does. <laughs> yeah, because of the squaring effect. And so the dependent variables, the overall index was daily data on war intensity scales, automobile accidents, fires, stock market, Israel's total crime, and the national mood in the international project in, in the Middle East. And then the U.S. stress index, it's daily, yearly data on murders, rapes, assaults, all those things that you saw already vehicle fatalities, drug deaths, child accidents due to fatalities. So it just shows that that the this this effect in our formula, the square root of 1% formula, works on these completely different time time scales and population sizes. It's very very universal. So that's the point I wanted to make that it's scalable. And then if we can see the very last slide, 
this is what we were talking about. The world population as of 2023 is 9 billion. And the square root of 1% of that is 9,487. So that's the group size needed to create coherence with the whole world. And so in the Vedic literature, it says, Vasudeva Kutum Bakam, the world is my family, a sentiment that is appreciated around the world. And we're all wanting world peace. And all we have to do is get, create one big group. For an engineering factor, we would like to have a big group on every continent and every city and so forth. But that's something we could discuss some other time. Thank you so much, Dr. Omjohnson. David, it was fascinating to look at it. And fascination might not be just the word because there is more than that sense of responsibility, sense of urgency, sense of necessity that this should be done and should be done as soon as possible. So thank you for doing the studies, following up the research and reporting it. Dr. Dilbeck, a great scientist, a sociologist, has worked with Dr. Kavanaugh on this, and uh, Dr. Orm Johnson completed it with some more statistics and looking at the effects after the groups uh, have dismantled or gradually reduced in number. And all of this, be it on the upside going up and seeing improvement or on the downside, going down in numbers and seeing the deterioration and the going back towards the previous trend lines, they indicate a very, very profound empirical uh, scientific correlation rather than just chance effect or just things happening uh, at the same time. So this is wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Orm Johnson and Dr. Kavanaugh. And we will be having a wonderful discussion with Dr. Kavanaugh that will take this whole story to uh, another still level uh, to show that it's not just one time that it happened or a few times, but it is systematic and it has effects on many, many levels. We have discussed some aspects of consciousness and the physical reality and how we can make a difference in that physical reality, what appears to be physical reality, which is also actually another aspect of consciousness, and how this is not just theoretical, but actually very practical, and how technologies of consciousness, transcendental meditation and the advanced techniques that we call the Siddhis program that come from the ancient knowledge of the yoga of the mind, can make a difference in society and make a difference in our lives as we raise our consciousness individually and collectively with a small group that can make a big difference on the entire society. Therefore, when we look at solving big problems, be it problems of conflict, problems of crime, problems of relationships between countries and wars, and even problems pertaining to the climate, climate change, or whatever big problems that we are encountering or we could encounter, we usually resort to physical aspects of action which means we think we need to do this and that on the physical level, on the surface level of life. And that is very good, of course, that we can do something. Something has to be done on the physical aspect. But since, as we have several times highlighted in our podcast, the ultimate reality is the reality of consciousness, which consciousness is the basis of everything, we should remember that from consciousness, we can make a big difference. And particularly on the big projects, on the big aspects of life that require higher awareness, that require decision-making that is very complex, that take into consideration factors that are much bigger than what local thinking and small thinking can do. And this is going to the depths of the ocean of being, the ocean of consciousness, which is the source of all that there is, and act from that level, 
being on that level, attuning ourselves with that level, which is transcending the surface value into the inner value, into the depth value, which is not just our inner reality as an individual, but also the essence and inner reality of all that there is. That is the field of consciousness, which has been glimpsed in physics as the unified field, the unified field of all the laws of nature. And we have discussed a very important 17-year research study that has followed up trends and different levels of stress and strain and problems in society and has shown the importance of these technologies of consciousness in modifying so many different factors, improving them to make life better, to prevent suffering, and problems and crime and difficulties in society and thus make people happier, make people live better and also save the country a lot of financial and economic troubles and produce effects that are very profound. Now, we looked at this longitudinal long study. Again, Dr. David Orne Johnson and Dr. Ken Cavano and we'd like to hear from the researcher who has been instrumental in these studies and who have followed them up and analyzed them with great precision to see their effectiveness, to see if we can rule out chance effects, and to study from a very, very scientific way the effects of the technologies of consciousness and their support to the idea that consciousness is all there is, but more than anything, to offer our world a possibility to make a big difference on all these different levels of environment, of crime, of accidents, things that we think we have no control over, or if we have some control, it's very minimal and it takes time and it's difficult to manage. And we can see that if we take the approach from consciousness, we can have quite immediate results that are very precisely following the cause of change, which is in this case, the creation of groups that practice these technologies and the numbers that are in those groups and their effects on making a difference. So Dr. Kavanaugh, it's wonderful to have you. Uh, thank you for all the wonderful research, the great research, very important research that you have done, which is really landmarks and important contributions to understanding the nature of life. And more than just understanding the nature of life, to pointing to technologies that can make life better. So it's a very practical program, very practical uh, technologies that is offered to us that we are discussing, not just nice ideas where we say, well, it's wonderful, consciousness is all there is, and we have arguments for it, and we say how it is, and it kind of becomes a theoretical, philosophical discussion which is great because with knowledge, we have better understanding and with better understanding, we can do better things in life. But it comes with a technology of consciousness that actually changes the reality on a very, very practical day-to-day -day life, meaning saving lives, saving from disease, saving from accidents, saving from conflict, improving the economy, and all of these aspects. So, Ken, you've been amazing in this research uh, with Dr. Dilbeck and also the support of Dr. Orm Johnson. Can you summarize for us a little bit uh, what we have discussed with Dr. Orm Johnson in the previous podcast, just as an overview, and then take us into more details of the analysis that you have done that has documented the effectiveness and the significance of this research. Thank you very much, Dr. Nadir, for inviting me to participate in this uh, wonderful 
podcast, and uh, I deeply appreciate the presentation by Dr. Orm Johnson, who is a great inspiration to me, his, his vision and his research over many years. And I want to emphasize that this, this work is, is all done um, in collaboration. For, for example, the studies I'll be talking about in just a few minutes uh, that look at monthly data as opposed to annual data that was described in the analysis uh, by Dr. Orm Johnson. All of this work has been done in conjunction with Dr. Uh, Michael Dilbeck, a very great scientist like Dr. Orm Johnson. So it, it, by, by no means, I'm just holding up my little part of, of the investigation and very privileged to, to work with these great scientists to examine this very important issue of how group practice of the Transcendental Meditation and its advanced aspect, the TM City program, as can affect the quality of life in society, or we could say indicators of stress in society, or we could call them in, in terms of uh, these studies that I'll be talking about in a minute, impacts on indicators of public health, because broadly speaking, public health embraces the whole quality of life of society. And so crime and violence and fatalities due to accidents and so on, all these are indicators of the, of the quality of uh, we could say in public health and society. So what Dr. Orm Johnson uh, summarized in the previous podcast uh, was over a 17 year period, the tracking the size of a group practicing at in the United States at uh, Maharishi International University in Fairfield, Iowa, tracking the hypothesized effect of the group practice of transcendental meditation and the TM City program, this advanced technique or aspect of TM, on societal indicators, fatality rates and rates of crime. And what the overall findings of the study is that looking at a wide variety of variables, eight different variables relating to crime, violent crime, and so on, as well as uh, fatality rates related to such things as infant mortality and so on, drug-related mortality, all of these variables seem to be positively influenced. That is, when the group was at a, at a theoretically predicted size, was at a theoretically predicted size for a five-year period from January 2007 to December 2011, these indicators all simultaneously improved. And this was compared to a baseline period of seven years for the study of annual data that Dr. Johnson was describing. In the studies we're talking about in just a minute here, uh, we have a five-year uh, baseline period for, for reasons uh, it's not important to go into. But So we have 15 years of monthly data we examine, and then 17 years uh, annual data as discussed by Dr. Arm Johnson. And what was found is that this hypothesis that if the sufficient size of the group was there, the square root of 1% was the theoretical prediction of the U.S. population, that if the group was at or near that critical size, that we would see the prediction was we would see improvements in a wide variety of public health indicators or stress indicators or quality of life indicators, whatever you choose to call them. And then the hypothesis, very importantly, was that when the group no longer was at the sufficient level to produce the theoretically predicted effect, that we, we would see a deterioration or a reversal of these improvements in, in social indicators. So you took basically the same study that you've done before and that you've looked at on a yearly basis and now look deeply into it to see, yeah. yes. let us analyze it. Yeah. Now there is yes. this big effect. Can we check it out more? Can we be more critical about it? Can we kind yeah. of doubt it and see yeah. if we can, you know, prove that we are wrong or prove that we are right by doing, you know, tiny little analysis? I guess this is what you've done. And did you take other factors also than the ones that were studied on a yearly basis or mainly the main factors? I think there's a pretty substantial overlap. There's only a very slight difference. I, I should explain that the, the four initial studies looked at monthly data. Those were published in 2016, 2017 uh, in, very, in very good journals. And those looked at the monthly analysis. And then um, three, the three most recent studies that have been published in the last six months, uh, one of which was presented uh, by Dr. Orm Johnson, that wonderful analysis. And then there are two other studies I'll be talking about. We're looking again at monthly data. So the distinguishing feature between the four initial studies and these three more recent studies that have appeared in the last six months is 
is that we look, we were able to look at the period after the group size declined below the theoretically predicted required threshold number to produce the predicted effects on society. So that has been very strengthening in our conclusions because we've shown, as Dr. M. Johnson showed very clearly, a deterioration in each of these variables, quality of life variables was found when the group was no longer big enough to produce the theoretically predicted effect. And the advantage of monthly data is it gives us, in a, in a single article, one can go much more deeply into alternative possible explanations and try to rule those out, either statistically or logically. And that's a very important part of this type of research. It's called quasi-experimentation. And we're using, just to use the technical term, interrupted time series analysis. So we this is a methodology that's used in the program evaluation literature, evaluating the effects of public programs or new laws or new events. It's often used in medicine in medical studies to examine the impact of medical treatments or medical care. And you have a baseline, then you introduce the new program or the new event. In this case, it's it's the group practice of a sufficient size uh, of the TM and TM City program. And then you, you compare what happened during your demonstration or experimental period with what happened during the baseline. And you have a prediction in advance, you need a prediction. And then you look, ideally, you look at after the treatment is taken away or the program is taken away. And then you see, well, what is the impact? Is there a deterioration in the effect as predicted? So this is this is what we've done. This is this is it's what like, we've done. It reminds me of the in the Bhagavad Gita of Krishna teaching Arjuna and telling him if you go ahead and do your duty, so many things will happen and so many good things will happen and all of that. And he keeps telling him the good things and the good things. Yes. And then at the end, he tells yes. him, well, if you don't do it, <laughs> that's what will will also exactly. happen to you. So this exactly. yoga of despondency, I exactly. think it is mentioned. And so you're analyzing this as if nature is giving us this unfortunate situation where uh, the group goes away and then we're telling the world, look, if you don't do it, this is what's going to happen. That's exactly that. And if I may, I'd like to quickly summarize the results of the most recent study, which is published in the medical journal Medicina, which is a very good medical journal, just came out a couple of weeks ago, and then talk a bit about the previous study that came out in August that looked at homicide rates. So again, both of these looking at longitudinal data over time and looking at what happened before, during, and after the period when we had the large group. Okay, so this uh, just an evaluation, or an overview, excuse me. We used data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, United States data, government data. And that CDC data indicate the U.S. has been experiencing a sustained epidemic of drug-related mortality with the deaths from this cause exceeding a record 100,000 in 2021 up an astonishing 47% from 2019. Since 1999, more than 1 million Americans have died of drug-related causes. So we're dealing with a very, very serious problem. And these, this 100,000 deaths, more than 100,000 in 2021, are more than the total combined from gun, gun violence and uh, automotive motor vehicle accidents. So it's a very large number. And in 2021, opioids, especially the synthetic opioid fentanyl, accounted for approximately 75% of this mortality. And the medical community is looking for evidence-based approaches to dealing with this apparently intractable and ever-worsening problem. These rising trends of drug-related fatalities are associated with what's been called a epidemic of stress in society, according to the American Psychological Association, the World Health Organization. And the purpose of this study is to evaluate the uh, a proposed consciousness-based approach, we could say, the group practice of the Transcendental Meditation and TM City program to help reduce trends in drug-related fatalities, and later we'll apply this to homicide rates as well, by mitigating the epidemic of, stre of stress in society that helps fuel drug, drug misuse and other negative public health trends. 
Now the methods we use, we won't get technical here, but basically we're using established state-of-the-art methods of program evaluation and something called segmented trend regression. It's not important that we go into details of that. And this, these methods were used previously in our prior studies. And uh, so we're using these same methods to evaluate further, further data on this grand social experiment. We could say this 15 or 17 year social experiment that produce these effects. Now, what are the results? I'm just giving a quick overview. As hypothesized, conclusion number one, hypothesis number one, practice of the TM and TM city program by a group of theoretically predicted size, and this is the square root of 1% of the US population, which was about 1,725 individuals at, at the time we're looking at, that that this practice was associated with a statistically and practically significant reduction in trends of drug fatality rates during the five-year demonstration period, and highly statistically significant. We'll mention how significant in just a minute. Secondly, our second hypothesis was a very scientific approach here. We state our hypotheses and then check with the data to see whether or not they are significant, either statistically or in a practical or a substantive way, or both, hopefully. Our second hypothesis was that th this trend, the reduced trend in drug fatality rates would subsequently increase during the five-year follow-up period when the group fell below the, the required size. And for a measure of practical or substantive significance, which is different from statistical significance, you can have a statistically significant result that has no practical importance at all. For example, it might mean a very small decline in fatalities uh, that's highly statistically significant. But what we're looking at are measures of practical significance. And one is that there was a 35.5% reduction in the de uh, rising trend of drug fatality rates during our demonstration period relative uh, to the baseline average. And this was followed during the follow-up period when the group size decreased below the threshold by increases of 11.8% and 47.4% relative to the demonstration period trend and mean during the follow-up period. So basically that, is, that just says we have a very big effect and it's very large. And in particularly when we look at the estimated savings of lives the estimate is that 86,309 drug-related fatalities were averted during the demonstration and follow-up periods of the study. And these numbers agree quite closely with numbers based on the annual uh, data as analyzed by Dr. Ram Johnson. I, I think the number there was 79, here we have 86,000. So that's very close. This is important to highlight really this point for those who are with us, not just for scientific curiosity, but to understand these terms, because in common parlance, we say significant, this is significant or this is not significant. And we usually imagine that significant means quite a bit, huge. But in statistics, as Ken showed us, Dr. Cavano, is that you can have an effect that actually correlates in a very specific way with the cause. And every time you produce the cause, there is an effect. And the possibility that this relationship is happening by chance is calculated in terms of significance. So yes. if it's 0.001% chance that it would happen by chance, <laughs> and then it's quite significant. It's very significant. So there are, when you see these p-values, those who are looking at the screen and are with us on video, this p-value means the significance. And the smaller the number, the more it is correlated in a very tight way. But what Dr. Kavanaugh is saying is the effect size, the importance of it, it's a different story. It's like if you put 10,000 people to meditate and do this program together and they save one person, you know, or two person per year, of course it's worth it. But the government say, well, cost effectiveness and all of that and how much we can do, it's not so, so important. 
you know, it's it's significant. The correlation is significant. You did change two lives. You did improve crime and reduce deaths by two people in a year. And it is very correlated, but it's not, the effect size is not important. And that is, you know, I was going to say it's not significant because this is how the terminology goes. And what Dr. Kavanaugh is telling us is, it's not just that the effect is there and the correlation is very solid, but the effect size is huge. You're changing by 35%, by 47%. And that's how he gave us these numbers. Can you imagine that in during this period, five years or so, was it five years, Ken? The, the total uh, savings of lives, 86,309, was for the full 10-year period of the demonstration plus the follow-up period. And the reason is that the decline, as we'll see in just a moment in the graph, that the drug fatality rate decreased substantially during the demonstration period, and the drug fatality rate, rate remained well below the, the baseline projection of what the rate would be without, without the group. For, Until it picked up, the so group, the effect was for, continuing even after that. So anyway, in any case, the number of, you know, even if it was in, in 20 years or in 100 years, if you save 86,000, almost 90,000 people were saved during the study, during that period, 90,000 people were saved. Even if it was like 10 years, then every year you're saving 9,000 lives. This is very, very important and very significant. So the effect is very significant in terms of correlation statistically, but it's also very important in terms of size, in terms of its effectiveness. Beautiful. Perhaps it, it Beautiful. would help the credibility of these studies if I read just briefly the comments to anonymous reviewers who are, who are appointed by the journal to evaluate our research and decide whether or not it was worthy of publication. Would that be all right? Just to take a second. Beautiful. To... Yes. Yes. Let's, let's enjoy these that. These are comments. These are these are people. That. We don't know who they are, but they're scholars and experts in the field, and that's the way scientific articles articles get published. They're sent out by the journal editors to experts, other scholars, who evaluate it with a fine tooth comb and and look for look for weaknesses and deficiencies, and um, in some cases make some uh, uh, some suggestions for improving, and then they make the decision together with the editor, whether it's going to be published. So here's the comment of uh, the first reviewer for this paper published in the medical journal Medicina. This study builds on an existing body of published peer-reviewed studies demonstrating the, demonstrating the association between the collective practice of meditation, TM and the TM cities, uh, interventions and positive societal outcomes. Sections 2.1 and 2.2 of the paper provide a sound empirical base presented for the current study. So that was the review of previously published studies that there have been 28 pre, uh, prior peer-reviewed published studies on the empirically examining this prediction uh, of the group practice on society. Next point, the authors, according to the reviewer, the authors provide detailed descriptions of the statistical methods used their robustness and suitability, and present compelling graphic evidence of the predicted and actual trends of drug-related fatalities over time in association with the different intervention periods being measured, that is, our demonstration period and follow-up period and baseline period. Okay, and continuing, I quote, they use a quasi-experimental model and outline and test two hypotheses that are subsequently supported by data. The authors appropriately review alternative explanations for the effects that the study identifies. And finally, the study is compelling. And while challenging to conventional wisdom on societal change, it is not new in the literature with published research on this effect found in the literature over the past decade and one half. So that we were very pleased with that, with that review. And the second reviewer, they, they appointed two outside reviewers and then the editor also reviewed it. The second reviewer says, and I quote, this is a further empirical study related to the field social effects of the transcendental meditation technique and its advanced aspect, the TM City program. 
The authors introduced this study through a wide review of previous findings and the theory behind their programs. The methods and results sections have been thoroughly described. In particular, the authors must be praised for the sensitivity diagnostic analysis of their results. And then he says, I, I have only minor suggestion to offer, which helped us improve the presentation of the study. So on the basis of those reviews, the editor concurred and the study was published. And uh, what we're looking at in this uh, study and, and all the studies we're talking about today and in the previous podcast, we're discussing what's called the Maharshi effect, which this prediction that Maharshi made as early as 1962 uh, that even a small number of individuals in society could affect the whole quality of life in society. And I quote from Maharshi from a, something he published in, in a book in 1978. I quote, whenever 1% of the people in any community practice transcendental meditation, balance in nature increases, accidents become less, and all the collective values, which we call social values of society, become more positive. Individuals become incapable of thinking wrong things. Their thinking changes in favor of society. Crime rate falls, sickness becomes less, and all other negative aspects of life diminish. So we have predictions lodged uh, well in advance, beginning in 1962, the same prediction. He's writing here about the 1% of, of society practicing TM, but he later introduced the shortcut, which is, the square root of 1% practicing TM and its advanced technique, the TM City program together, reduces the requirement to the square root of 1% practicing in a single group would produce the same effect as 1% of individuals in society practicing transcendental meditation alone. I um, want to just highlight the importance of the reviewers and the fact that it's been published in a peer-reviewed journal. For those who are not familiar, the scientific research, you know, has to prevent bias. And why uh, Dr. Kavanaugh presenting this for us is that, you know, some people who hear it, they will say, well, you are biased because you're excited about this, you're happy you did your research. And so maybe, you know, maybe the, the method hasn't been perfect. Maybe you didn't check for some other variables, maybe this, maybe that. And so if we send it, you know, if we publish it, we want to make sure that it's solid. And so Ken is not presenting this to say, look how great I am. Of course not. <laughs> he is great anyway, but it's not the reason. The reason is to show that independent reviewers who are scientists, who are going to give their opinion whether a study is solid, whether it works, whether the effects are being controlled properly, whether it's not due to chance, whether the statistics are all right, have given those opinions. And this is very important for we have an independent reviewers, we have an independent journal uh, that has what we call peer review, which means reviewed by people of the same knowledge of the field, uh, the same scientific ability to study the complex statistical analysis and check the data and all of that. They have independently reviewed it and given their positive, very, very positive support. And that's why the, uh, the article is being published. And so just to say, it's not that, oh, we have an idea and we are biased and we have some kind of subconscious, maybe unconscious prejudice. And then we look at it and we adjust the data so that it makes sense. No, it is solid. It is effective. And it has been analyzed by great scientists already, Dr. Dilbeck, Dr. Kavanaugh, Dr. Orm Johnson, but also by completely independent reviewers of the journal. So this is really important. This is really yes, and important. Uh, we should remark that it, it, it's quite a challenge to get any paper published in scientific literature because of the intensiveness of, of the review process. And so we're very pleased. So now we have a, a graphic shown on this slide. And oh, by, by the way, uh, I'm reminded that we've, we, to ensure objectivity at, to the degree we can, we've published our data. Uh, I've set up a website, a webpage, 
at a uh, scientific repository, as it's called, where we could put up our data and we can put up so anyone can go there and get the data and do their own analysis to verify our, our findings. And more and more journals are asking authors to do exactly that, to facilitate faster progress in the whole scientific endeavor if others can, can look at that data and do their own analysis. So here we have a familiar picture, as we saw in the previous podcast, if we recall. This is the size, the monthly average daily size, of the TM and TM City Group at Maharishi International University for the period 2002 to 2016. So on the x-axis here, we have the dates, uh, 2002 to 2016. And only the years are shown here, but there's 12 months in between each of these year markings, okay? So this is monthly data. We have 180 data points as compared with 17 in the annual study. So that enables us uh, to look at a very fine grain. And we see here on the, on the y-axis, this is the size, the average size of the TM City group. And as we saw previously in the baseline period, just prior to the onset of our social experiment, we have the baseline period, the numbers had declined to even below 600 in uh, 2006, early 2006. And then the um, uh, demonstration period was announced that we would do this social experiment and people began to gather and come to uh, participate in the group. And for the period January 2007 to December 2011, we've defined this as the demonstration period. On average, during this period, the, the group size was 105% of this critical square root of 1% level of 1,725. That was the required number to produce the effect. And then in the follow-up period, beginning in 2012, January up through December 2016, we see the group size was declining steadily and ending up right around where it began in 2006. So. Now here is, the, here is the key plot from this particular study, T time series plot. So again, we have the same x-axis. Here, here are the, the years and the months uh, for that whole period of 15 years. And the y-axis here in this graph is the monthly drug-related fatality rate per million population. And that is the red line. The red line is the actual observed data, what happened to the drug fatality rate. And then we see a blue line here, which we'll get into in just a minute, but the blue line is a statistical forecast based on the baseline trend only and the seasonal variation that we see in the up and down wiggles here, a random variation, and a lot of it's just due to a seasonal variation. That is, there is a seasonal uh, variation in the drug fatality rate or homicide rate and so on. And so we can model that and we project that baseline trend as well as the seasonal pattern that's there up to the end of the follow-up period, up to December 2016. So the overall view here is we see a rising trend of uh, drug-related fatality rate shown by the red line during the base five-year baseline period. Then beginning with uh, January 2007, when our group reached the critical threshold, we see that this trend of rising drug fatalities and drug fatality rate leveled out, it flattened out. And so we see this is a big swing. This, this if you swing down this forecast line down to down to here, horizontal, that's a that's a reduction, a very substantial reduction of uh, uh, 35%. So uh, that's what we're seeing. We're seeing a change in trend, a flattening out of that rising trend. And then when we get into the follow-up period, when the group declined in size, we see the group begins to. Uh, excuse me, the drug fatality rate begins to increase more slowly at first, but then it begins to really rapidly escalate in 2015-2016. And this is this period, 2015-2016, is the part of the follow-up period when the group was, was at its smallest size and had decreased back to the level uh, to 2006 levels. So what we're seeing here, the effect is the effect relative to the baseline trend. So we have a very significant, we were hypothesizing, we would see a, a shift in trend. And that's what we found, a big shift in trend from a rising trend to a flat trend. And then the hypothesis was in the follow-up period, we again would see uh, an increase in trend again, rising relative to the trend during the demonstration period. 
during the 2012-2016 follow-up period. So both of those hypotheses were substantiated by our data, looking at it statistically. And this also passes the eyeball test, we call it. This is very important in studies like this. Does it, uh, does it pass the so-called interocular test? Does it hit you between the eyes? And I think you look at this graph, and for me at least, it hits me between the eyes. I mean, this is a huge change in what the baseline trend was projected to result in, in terms of drug fatality rates, and what we actually observed with the observed rates well below the forecasted rate for the entire 10-year period of the demonstration and follow-up periods. And then follow this is periods. wonderful. Just to take an ex another example, again, we used in the previous podcast the, the example of hitting the room when it's called outside. But it makes me think that it's a cooling effect. So let's take another example where you have lots of heat outside. It's very hot outside. And, you know, your room has been sheltered from the heat a little bit because you close the window and you have some kind of aeration. And then if you keep waiting, you can predict actually on a graph how soon the heat will start moving into your room and uh, how it will be as you go along. And then you can actually have a very scientific analysis of how and when the heat will be increased in the room. Because outside it's very hot, you are sheltered inside, but still the heat will go through the room and will heat the room. Now, if you have a cooling system inside the room, you can start the cooling, and then when you start the cooling, the room will cool down, and you will see the difference, and you're kind of shielded from the outside heat. And then at one point you decide, you say, okay, I have had now enough coolness, I am very cool, and it's very nice, and I'm going to stop the cooling process. What will happen? Your room is cool, and so it will stay cool a little bit, but then again, it will start warming up and then heating and then heating. And then after a while, it comes back to the previous situation. And again, you go back to what it would have been in case you had left it without, without the cooling process. So in this case, it's really similar even better, I would say, but I won't uh, discuss why it's better. What Dr. Kavanaugh is showing us is that there is a period where the situation is getting worse and worse and worse, and it's expected to continue to be even much worse later. But you introduce the group effect. You introduce the group of people who practice these techniques of the cities, and then you see a striking change, a striking cooling effect, which what is the cooling effect in this case is the drug-related fatalities have decreased in a striking way. And then the group starts dismantling, which means you stop the cooling effect. And it will still feel cooling, cooling, a little cool, but it starts warming up, starts warming up. And then at what point it comes back to where it was before and even more, of course, because the heating is, is coming back. And he said that this is striking to the eye, the ocular effect, whatever term he has used, because on the graph, it's so striking besides the fact of studying, it's like, uh, you know, uh, statistically, etc. It is an absolutely striking effect. So for those who are just listening and not seeing, I can tell you, I agree with, with Ken that it's really striking. It's amazing. And when you count the numbers as he has done, and he will show us, has shown us already a little bit, uh, it's even more striking. Thank you. That's, that's a beautiful analogy to help understand that. And some people may find this particular slide easier to understand. And this is a bar graph of the effects that we're, we're talking about here. And this is technically, we call it the treatment effects, interrupted time series, ITS, treatment effects. So this is part of the jargon, you forgive me, uh, of the program evaluation literature. So we have the US drug fatality rate, 2002 to 2016, 
we're analyzing before, during, and after the demonstration period. That um, we're just presenting the information on the previous slide in a bar graph in terms of the changes in trend. So here we have on, on the y-axis, now we have the change in predicted drug fatality rate per million persons. And this is measuring what we call the treatment effects. The three bars on the right measure what we could call the treatment effects of each particular time segment of the social experiment. So the first bar here on, in the red shows the total rise in the drug fatality rate that was based on the baseline trends, the five-year baseline trend. And so we see an increase here in the rate. It's almost uh, four fatalities per, per million people. And so this is a very large and statistically significant increase. Then we have the blue, the blue bar here pointing downward shows the reduction in trend relative to the baseline during our demonstration period, January 2007 to 2011. And what uh, was the level of statistical significance for that study uh, for that particular period? That change in trend, if we were to assume there was no significant change in trend, it's really zero. What is the probability we would, we would observe a decline in trend of that magnitude as shown here in the blue bar? Well, that probability, it's called the p-value, is less than one times 10 to the minus ninth. It's a very small number. And that means there's less than one chance in a billion that the true change in trend going from baseline to the demonstration period was zero. So the infinitesimal probability, very small. And then we shift, what is the change in trend going from the demonstration period to the first part of our follow-up period? We have these two bars on the right, these two red bars, show the two segments of the follow-up period. First one was from January 2012 to December 2014, where we had a more gradual shift in the downward trend. It starts to move up. And then the, the red bar on the far right shows the change during 2015-2016, which shows a very, very rapid rise in the drug fatality rate. So looking at the shift from the demonstration period trend, which was flat, to the rising trend during the first follow-up subperiod, what's the probability of, of observing this big an increase relative to the decreased trend during the demonstration? Well, the probability is less than one times 10 to the minus seventh, which is one chance in less uh, than 10 million. So that's, a, again, a very highly statistically significant result. And we'll see in a minute that it's also very, very significant in terms of lives saved, practical significance. Then moving to the last part of the follow-up period, 2015, 2016, January 2015 to December 2016, we see this very large increase in trend relative to the decrease in trend during the demonstration period. Now, what is the probability of observing a change of this magnitude relative to what happened during the demonstration period if there really were no effect? So this is the question we answer with the p-value, so-called p-value, it's the probability of observing this change in trend relative to the demonstration period uh, that we would observe if there really were no effect at all, the true effect of zero. How likely is it that we would observe this large an effect? Well, it turns out that that probability is less than, than one times 10 to the minus 46, which is a, an increase of one chance. There's less than one chance in 3.8 trillion. So that is a very, very small number. And it, really what that means is all of these changes in trend are highly statistically significant. And we'll discuss now how practically significant they are. First of all, we look at the estimated fatalities averted by these shifts in trends. Overall, we have, as we mentioned, 86,309 fatalities were averted or prevented during the combined demonstration period and the follow-up period. There were 34,194 prevented during the demonstration period, 2007, 2011, and then another 52,115 during the entire five-year follow-up period. So these two, 34 and 52, total to 86 here. So as uh, Dr. Nader has pointed out, these are very large and very practically significant, medically significant, public health significant numbers. And there's nothing out there, I think, uh, safe to say that has ever been shown 
in, in a program evaluation to show any kind of effects like this. And also we could look at percentage changes here. So the demonstration period trend declined by 35.5% relative to the baseline mean. And we have, this was followed by an 11.8% increase in the rate uh, as compared to the demonstration period mean. And then a 47.4% increase in the drug fatality rate versus, again, the demonstration period mean. So these are very large percentage changes and very large also in terms of what's called standard deviations, which are standard measures of variability. We won't go into that. So the conclusion is statistically significant effects were found according to our hypothesis, and they are practically significant, very substantively important. Now, the next step one has to undertake is to consider alternative explanations because we have, we've implemented a program, but the other things are going on in society and that we can't control. This is not a controlled experiment. It's called a quasi-experiment. We introduce a program, make a prediction what's going to happen before, during, and after the program. And we see, does it, does it have a significant effect? And if we find that it does have an important and statistically significant effect, then it's reasonable to ask, well, could something else have caused what we've observed, these changes we've observed? And this is a really critical part to getting anything published in studies of this kind, social experimentation. You have to really clearly rule out alternative, plausible explanations. So let's consider the ones that are most important. The first potential alternative is, well, perhaps physicians decrease their prescriptions of opiate uh, pain reliever drugs. So that would be the first thing you would look for. Well, according to data from the American Medical Association, prescriptions of opioid painkillers peaked in 2011. So that's the last year of our demonstration period. So that's when it reached the peak. It was increasing up to the end 2011. Only from 2012 through 2020 did physicians actually reduce their rate of prescribing opioids. Now, this reduction, unfortunately, did not lead, according to the AMA, did not lead to decline in drug-related fatalities, and the drug fatality rate returned to its rapidly rising trend during the follow-up period 2012 to 2016. So this is a critical factor supporting our analysis, our hypothesis, that it cannot be due to reductions in opioid prescriptions. It cannot be due. Conclusively, we can say that. The thing is, we, we have to just say that many of those who become addicted to drugs and then have problems start actually by having, you know, some pain, some accident, something, and then the doctors prescribe to them some opioids, which are opiates, they are pain relievers because patients feel so much pain, nothing else can help. So what the doctor can do, they give them the most powerful pain reliever. Unfortunately, they become addicted to it. So it has been shown or thought that actually when, when you prescribe more of these opiates, then you get more addiction. And so one can say, again, to paraphrase Ken, okay, maybe during that period, doctors suddenly decided to give you know, less opioid prescriptions, and that's why there were less addictions. And what he's shown us here is that it has absolutely nothing to do with that, and that, you know, the increase and decrease are actually not at all happening due to the prescription, in a sense, during that period where we did the studies. You cannot explain the reduction in addiction due to physicians' prescriptions at all. And that is proven both ways, on the negative side and on the positive side. On the positive yes, side. Yes, thank you very much. That's, and, and these opioids, they're, they're much stronger than some other kinds of drugs, and it's very easy to misuse them, to use too much, and then get addicted to downward spiral. Another alternative explanation would be, well, maybe it has something to do with national economic trends, and we can rule that out because the economic downtrend, the the so-called Great Recession of 2008-2009, uh, the peak of that was after January 2007 when the group uh, reached the critical threshold and the upward rising trend of drug fatality rates flattened out. So 
that explanation cannot pass the test of logic. And a next possible factor would be changes in ambient temperature trends and seasonal factors. Well, why are we looking at that? Well, there's some literature that shows that cocaine uh, fatalities are, are greater when ambient temperatures, temperatures are higher. And so we had to rule that out and we included ambient temperature data in our analysis and it had absolutely no effect in terms of reducing statistical significance or practical significance. So ambient temperature can be ruled out. Pre-existing trends we can rule out because we've seen the pre-existing trend and the baseline was rising. And what happened was a flattening out of that and then a later resumption of the uprising, the rising trend when the group declined below the critical predicted necessary size. And the other factor has to do with more technical considerations we won't go into, but there are statistical things, so-called spurious results in regression analysis, a particular statistical method we're using here, or other violations of statistical assumptions. And we did a extensive uh, battery statistical test to make sure all the assumptions were satisfied and those were all, all very satisfactory. So in sum, these changes in trend that we observe in drug fatality rates, moving in opposite directions, you know, going from rising during the baseline to flattening, redu reducing during the trend, reducing during the uh, demonstration period, and then again, rising in the follow-up period. These changes in trend in opposite directions at the predicted times, and that's very important. So we, we predict the timing of these changes in direction in opposite directions as hypothesized in our two hypotheses, one and two, uh, these results offer very strong statistical support and logical support <laughs> for both of our research hypotheses. So our study here passed the test of ruling out alternative explanations. If we had not been able to do that, then the study probably wouldn't have been published. That's, this is that important, this, this step in the scientific evaluation of social experiments. Social and experiments. it is important for every one of us who is listening to realize that if we were to say something about this to other people or scientists and say how great it is that this program can reduce, in this case, drug-related fatalities and drug uh, problems and all of that, Many will say, oh, this is very difficult to control. There must be some other factors. Maybe the weather changed. Maybe the prescriptions of doctors changed for some reason. There was a trend and all of that, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's very important to know that this study has been done so accurately. And that's why Ken tells us at the end that if we hadn't done this, we would not have been able to publish the paper. They would not have been able to publish this paper. And it's for that reason that we have to know that this has been done so systematically. So we cannot say control because control, you have to create a control group, but you have looked at the variables that might influence the study and its changes. And you find that to the contrary, actually, in some case, it, it should have done the opposite effect. And yet we find a very precise, significant and important correlation due to the presence of this group when they are there systematically, reliably, repeatedly, we have a reduction in these conflicts and these problems. And it's not due to any other factor, to any other factor. Thank you for tuning into Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast. And if you're interested in learning more from Dr. Nader, please follow him on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube.